Stand.Earth. Earth. So Shapora Bergman from Stand.Earth Earth is with us, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. We still haven't heard anything on the chat for uh, where we were left off, um, but maybe you could let us know while people are responding to us. Shapora, um, was COP a success? Ah, for um, for those who don't know what the acronym is, um, COP is the uh, uh, Conference of Parties, and this is this last COP was COP twenty six. So it's uh, twenty six uh, conference of parties that have been that have been negotiating um, with the uh, on climate change. Right. This one um, was held in Scotland. Um, in in you know, I always, I feel like they're always a bit of a mixed bag, quite frankly, because. Uh, progress is made when when the countries get together and share their plans and 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 negotiate. There's also almost like a, a side progress because these conferences of parties end up being the biggest conference on climate change in the world. You know, can be twenty, thirty thousand people, and so you get side agreements, etc. So I would say, at an overall uh, from COP26, um, this is the first conference of the parties that. Um, you know, the, the first time that there has been included in the text a reference to a fossil fuel, which I talk about in my TED talk seems kind of crazy because we know that uh, the emissions trapped in our atmosphere that are blanketing uh, the earth that are causing climate change come from three products, oil, gas and coal. But for literally decades, there has been no reference to the need uh, to wind down uh, fossil fuels in order to ensure a stable climate. So there was a big debate about that at this uh, at this COP finally, and uh, the result was that uh, coal um, was included as well as inefficient fossil fuel subsidies and the need to wind them down were included in the in in the text. So that's a bit of a breakthrough. It's the first time, um, but it's insufficient uh, for what needs to happen. And and it and it really a lot of my writing and a lot of my work surrounds the the fact that we're kind of burying our heads in the sand because it's controversial and it's hard. It is not going to be easy either to reduce how much fossil fuels we use in our lives, or especially for countries and and jurisdictions like Alberta, to to eventually stop producing them because we're currently dependent on them. So my work is around focusing on the need for planning. That we actually have to, you know, I talk about it like staring into the sun, you know, we actually have to acknowledge what's happening, what the causes are, in order to plan in a way that leaves no one behind. And and I so I think the reference to fossil fuels was a bit of a breakthrough. The debate around oil, gas and coal at COP this year was a bit of a breakthrough. What did we actually achieve? Um, we saw pledges from countries that now add up to um, more but they add up to a little more than two degrees. Uh, we know um, that uh, that means um, dramatic uh, extreme weather. It means millions of people will lose their homes. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people will lose their lives. We're already at about 1.2 degrees of warming and you know we, we're all living the impacts, the fires in Alberta and British Columbia, the floods. Um, you know, we just lived through a heat dome in British Columbia last year, which was terrifying and hundreds of people died. So we're all starting to live the impacts of climate change now and every ton of carbon matters, every little bit of a degree matters. So right now the world's pledges don't add up to enough. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other really big issue is um, 
is around technologies. A lot of the commitments by countries are based on overestimations of how much carbon we can sequester by planting trees or how much carbon we can sequester from a carbon capture and storage. I'm not one of those people who says those technologies shouldn't happen. I think, I think those technologies and sequestering carbon is really important. But it's important to take carbon that's stuck in our atmosphere now out, not to justify polluting more. And what we've seen in our own countries, um, and certainly the Alberta government's uh, climate plans, is is this dependence on these technologies that are right now not working the way we hoped they would, and they're too expensive, and and they're uh, going to take a long time to scale, and and so we need to actually reduce overall emissions and production now if we want to have a stable climate. And we also need to plant more trees, protect more forests, and do more carbon capture and storage. Um, but that has to be for for taking uh, pollution that's already trapped in our atmosphere, not to justify polluting more. And we saw a lot of dependence on these net zero commitments that have really unrealistic calculations of what we can store and sequester in them, which is not great. And that happened at COP. And then the final big issue at COP was around money you know, and, and equity, really. So issues around loss and damage and what wealthy countries are putting on the table to help the um, developing countries leap over the fossil fuel era and also address the worst impacts of climate change, which is, you know, the, the impacts of climate change in the global south are way more severe. And the equity issues come into play because they're not responsible for the for the carbon that's trapped in our atmosphere today. It's actually the really wealthy countries that are more responsible. And so the commitments um, uh, on finance were about $20 billion uh, short um, and slow. The commitments on adaptation, again, were really, uh, really um, uh, low. And in fact, climate finance to some of the most vulnerable nations, small islands actually went down at COP26. So th this failure to provide loss and damage support for the global south will cost lives. So no, I wouldn't say COP26 was a success, moved some issues forward, uh, but I think we have a long way to go. Um, what is BOGA, B-O-G-A? That was interestingly one of the breakthroughs of kind of the side conference that happens at COP. So BOGA is, stands for the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. And I really think this is a game changer because this is the first time that you have nation states stepping up to the plate and saying, we, we're going to stop expanding oil and gas production. And we commit to winding it down to align with our climate and Paris goals. So it's uh, the initiative is hosted by Denmark and Costa Rica, but there are 11 other countries and subnationals, including Quebec uh, and California, who have joined the initiative. So the initiative starts to create a kind of a community of practice. So countries and, and, and provinces and states can talk about how they're doing it. Because as I talked about in my TED talk, the, the um, uh, issue of reducing production, so climate supply policy is what it's called, supply side policy, really hasn't been a part of climate policy for the last 20 or 30 years. We've really focused on reducing the demand uh, um, and consumption of fossil fuels, 
But if we continue to expand the production, we lock in really expensive infrastructure and the use of fossil fuels in a way that is inconsistent with a, a stable climate. So we have to also reduce the production uh, of oil, gas, and coal. And and these and these uh, countries that have committed to BOGA, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, have committed to do that. And I think we're going to see more and more countries moving that way. And and I, I see it as a as a precursor to real international cooperation on who gets to produce what, and how do we ensure that we don't produce too much over time and and to the fossil fuel treaty, uh, which is what I spend most of my time working on right now. And how do you think a new fossil fuel treaty would work, and why is it so important? The bottom line is that no country or company can do this alone. Mm. That, you know, we know that we have enough oil, gas, and coal currently under production or under construction to take us past safe climate limits. That if we burn all the oil and gas and coal that is already in the system, uh, that um, that will be levels of uh, disruption in terms of flooding and fires and droughts um, that are uh, could take us past a tipping point where we've actually lost so much sea ice that we have less reflective um, capacity on the earth and climate change becomes a runaway um, a runaway train that we the earth just gets warmer and warmer and warmer and and more and more people are 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 impacted. We've been studying that science and those projections for a long time. The only way they've been wrong is that they've actually been too conservative. Climate change is happening faster uh, than the scientists had predicted. And the impacts affect everything. They affect our price of food. They affect um, agriculture, economic issues, et, et cetera. So it's really hard for Alberta or Canada to say, we're going to do this. Um, and for that to um, uh, mean that we reach safe climate goals, because of course, there are dozens of countries, even more that produce oil, gas and coal. So if Canada produces less, what is Saudi Arabia going to do? What is Denmark, Norway going to do? And so um, what's happening today is that every country and every company really wants to be the last barrel sold. You know, I hear a lot from decision makers in, in, in the federal government and also when I used to work in Alberta that, you know, yes, the world will use less oil and gas and yes, we have to address climate change, but if the world is going to use some, it might as well be ours. The problem is everybody thinks that. And so we're just producing more and more and more and making the problem worse. So, so it was actually my experiences in Alberta that led me to start looking at, well, what are the ways that we can ensure international cooperation to constrain the production of fossil fuels and jumpstart renewable energy and electrification so, so that we have a safe planet? And, and we need negotiations on issues like debt forgiveness, on, on removing the barriers to countries. We can't just let the markets and OPEC decide how much of these products we're producing if we know it's the products that are killing us. And that's where the analogy in the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty comes to nuclear weapons. It used to be that we knew that nuclear weapons were the greatest security threat to the planet. Um, now even the World Economic Forum identifies failure to act on climate change as the greatest security threat to the planet. 
And, and that, as I mentioned in my talk, comes from three things, oil, gas, and coal. So the fossil fuel treaty, I think initially, like nuclear non-proliferation, we're going to see some um, first movers and some like-minded countries starting to uh, push for the treaty. This will create some bilateral and multilateral negotiations on removing some of those barriers to international cooperation. Like Ecuador, Guyana, they can't stop new oil exploration even if they want to, because in part they're just doing it to feed their debt. So we do we do negotiate globally things like debt forgiveness for COVID for many other reasons. We need to start looking at debt forgiveness for the climate, to 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 support these countries in in diversifying their economies so they're they're not making the problem bigger. So so this year we're working with academics and diplomats from around the world to identify the principles, um, and the mechanisms underneath a fossil fuel treaty. And we think what will start happening is negotiations on, on, on these bilateral and multilateral issues, more and more countries joining and calling uh, for a fossil fuel treaty, um, and eventually uh, a treaty that actually where countries commit to how much they're going to produce. Because although we have a lot, lot of climate agreements and negotiations around the world right now, we don't have any place where governments are negotiating who gets to produce what fossil fuels and 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 how much. So I'm not sure how much of the, the TED talk that I gave people um, really heard, um, but what's really exciting about the fossil fuel treaty is that we're starting to get support from cities around the world who are passing motions to endorse. That's pretty important. It was really important to nuclear non-proliferation that cities can band together, and encourage national governments to take an issue seriously. We also have uh, over 2,700 scientists who have endorsed the concept. And just in the last six months, we have elected officials, so parliamentarians from all different parties, from 33 countries. So I think it's about 170 parliamentarians from 33 countries now have endorsed the concepts behind a fossil fuel treaty, which are stop expansion, negotiate a wind down that is equitable and fast track the move uh, to to renewables. So all of this momentum will start to build. Uh, and then um, our goal is that eventually countries will propose it on the floor of the UN and negotiations will begin. Wow, amazing. How does this relate to Alberta's oil and gas production? And what would you say to the workers in the oil and gas sector? It's a really critical question, especially, you know, I, I think the last many years we've seen under Premier Jason Kenney a real polarization of these issues to to such an extent that folks who worry about climate change and, and understand that we're going to move away from oil and gas are really are really vilified. Look at the Alberta inquiry and the war room and all of those things um, that that happened. Um, I know this very well personally. When the Premier of Alberta announced the war room, he stood on the stage beside a man who held up a poster of my head uh, with a slash through it, wow. enemy of Alberta. Wow. Working on these issues, acknowledging that we are going to need to wind down oil and gas production and emissions doesn't make you an enemy of Alberta. And here's why. What we're calling for is a plan. So we know, the Premier, Premier Kenny knows, all of the major international economic agencies and environmental agencies have put out reports 
saying that the world is going to use less oil and gas in the future, that we need to get to net zero by 2050. And the trends already show that. You know, we have now 50 countries that have committed to phase out the fossil fuel car, including our own. So as we start to electrify transport, as people move more to renewables at scale, which are now cheaper than fossil fuels in almost every major market, we're going to use less oil and gas. So what we're saying is let's not make the problem bigger. So no one's saying turn off the taps overnight and everyone's out of work. What we're saying is stop expanding oil and gas production. Let's put that money and energy into expanding electrification and renewables and systems that are cleaner and safer. And let's make a plan for how many people are going to be employed in Alberta this year, next year, the year after, if we're ramping down. So by denying this is happening and just pushing to expand, we're hurting the future, the economic future of Alberta and, and workers and their families. So if we're going to have a just transition and even a global just transition, which those are fancy words that really just mean, are we going to make sure that no worker or their family are left behind? Are we going to make sure that we have retraining and economic diversification and competitiveness opportunities so that we're supporting industries where people can find jobs? Because the fact is right now we subsidize the oil and gas industry uh, more than almost any other industry in the country. And if you look at um, just Alberta, jobs have been going down even though we've been producing more and more. Royalties, the amount of money that taxpayers get from the oil and gas companies who are still making record profits, royalties are going down. Tax breaks and fossil fuel subsidies are going up. So the trends right now are they're employing less people, they're giving the Canadian taxpayers less money, they're leaving us with massive billion-dollar cleanup bills in the form of abandoned wells and the toxic tailing ponds. And, and, and meanwhile, we're handing the industry more and more taxpayers' dollars in the form of subsidies because they're just so politically powerful. So, so we need to plan to wind down this industry, and, that, and that's going to be difficult but it's harder every day we pretend it's not happening. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a lot of questions in the queue. So okay. for those of you who were wondering, um, uh, SACPA had created these first four questions that I asked. So these were questions based, um, um, had been discussed already. So now I will go to the queue because we have so many. I um, will ask one question per person and then if we have time at the end, I will come back to your question. Um, I believe the first one was from all the way back. Sorry, I'm just um, not very organized here. That kind of threw me off as well. Um, what would you say to organizations like humanprogress.org who say that the only way to get populations to worry about the environment is actually to industrialize the population? I'm not, first of all, I'm not familiar with the organization and I'm not really sure what industrialize the population means. 
Um, so I'm going to maybe invite whoever did ask that question to put a little bit more um, in in the chat because um, I, I, I'm not really sure what they're asking. Okay. Um, uh, Tom Moffat, more of a, a comment, I guess. One degree is bad enough. Can't imagine doubling it. Um, Cheryl Bradley, can you please comment on Mark Carney's proposal to engage big corporations in reducing climate change globally? Is it part of the solution in your view? Absolutely. This is a moment in our history when we need all hands on deck, quite frankly. Um, we're racing against the clock uh, to, to stop. I mean, every year right now, emissions are growing. We're trapping more and more emissions in our atmosphere. And we need to reverse that trend. Um, and 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 so, so yes, we need we need all hands on deck. We do need corporations and government. I want to speak specifically though to GFANS, which is the finance uh, initiative that Mark Carney has recently created and was announced at at COP26. I think it is really really critical. We need finance and money to be moving instead of towards fossil fuels to to the solutions, to kick-starting uh, a faster uptake of uh, renewables and electrification. And unfortunately, I think, the, the, the principles for being a member of this new banking coalition that he has started, GFANS, are just way too weak. It harkens back to the, to the comment I made on net zero and carbon capture and storage, um, and whether or not corporations are acting now or they're or they're or they're hiding uh, the fact that they're continuing to finance more and more pollution um, and and just uh, a little bit more efficiency. So in the policy world and in the climate world, we talk about absolute emissions and production decline versus emission decline. So a lot of these companies and certainly the principles involved, they don't require absolute emissions decline in the progress. So they look more at carbon intensity um, than they, which is which is how much carbon in a barrel of oil, for example, instead of are you reducing overall uh, emissions? And again, they rely on either offsets or carbon capture and storage in unrealistic amounts, and they don't require absolute emissions decline. So we have to stop um, pretending that we can solve this with some quick technological fixes. We have to ensure absolute emissions and production decline uh, right away. And, and that's in fact what the International Energy Agency has said if we want to um, stay below 1.5 degrees, as well as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, all of the major reports out there. So this isn't, this isn't just um, you know, something that advocates believe, it's actually what the science is telling us but the current corporate commitments uh, are are weak and have too many loopholes in them. Um, we've heard back from Denver, Denver Florence, who asked that first question. What would you oh. say to organizations like humanprogress.org who say that the only way to get populations to worry about the environment is actually to industrialize those populations? And he goes on to clarify isn't burning coal cleaner than burning wood or dung? Um, well, I can definitely address the the wood and coal question. Um, uh, the answer is no. 
Um, it's not cleaner. Um, but there are um, renewable energy and electrification at scale that is possible um, that is a lot cleaner. Um, I actually, our organization, my organization, Stand Out Earth, has launched a new campaign actually on wood burning because it is it is very dirty. And right now the industry says they're using wood waste, but they're actually using whole trees. And in some circumstances, like in British Columbia, uh, we have um, our investigative research has showed they're using old growth trees to make wood pellets. Um, so that's not a replacement uh, for coal. Um, but coal, if you just look at uh, carbon content, coal is one of the dirtiest uh, fuels, but not just in terms of climate change. Oil, coal, oil, and gas have huge health impacts as well. So moving to these cleaner and renewable systems um, and more energy efficiency has massive uh, implications uh, that for our for human health. A study came out in Harvard last year uh, that shows that one in five deaths. Um, uh, globally are, are a result uh, mm -hmm. of uh, fossil fuels and, and predominantly uh, air pollution. So these products are, are literally killing us. Mm -hmm. And so we need to not jump out of the pan and into the fire um, by saying, for example, as a lot of people in industry right now are saying, use gas instead of coal. Um, no, in fact, gas and the rise of LNG and gas is competing with renewables again in, in, in Asia. We have had so many technological breakthroughs in the last decade on battery storage and renewables and price drops that are just astounding that we, we no longer need to build more fossil fuels in order to ensure energy security. Okay, um, our next question kind of walks right into that. Timothy Swinghammer. We have to change regulations and policies to protect people in southern Alberta from health effects of climate change inducing extreme heat uh, wave domes. Absolutely. And I don't think we're spending, certainly not in Alberta, but not even in British Columbia or the rest of Canada, um, I don't think our governments are focused enough on adaptation and what we need to do to ensure uh, resiliency and security and safety. Uh, for populations. And again, we really saw that during the heat dome uh, last year um, in British Columbia or the floods uh, that we also experienced. We don't have plans in place uh, for extreme weather. Um, and we certainly don't have plans in place like cooling shelters, etc., for people when there are heat waves. And, and so we need to advocate for those. We need governments to plan. We have the adaptation maps. We know what we can expect. Um, and um, if we just leave the public to deal with it on its own, more people suffer, more people die. Um, and the economic implications are significant. I think many in Alberta know that as a result of the flooding, because this is going to re require governments to step in and support and regulate. And we are seeing insurance companies now flee areas uh, where they know there will be flooding or where they know there will be fires. Um, and that's a that's a massive problem because the fact is we already have enough carbon trapped in our atmosphere. We know that this um, what we had in the last couple of years is just a taste uh, of of what the uh, years to come uh, will be. And you know our governments are supposed to be setting up systems uh, to 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 protect us. So we need to be advocating uh, to our elected decision makers. And it's part of what I've been talking a lot about in my writing and in, in a lot of my public speeches is that 
we think of ourselves just as consumers as it relates to climate change. You know, oh, I have to save up to buy an electric car. I need to retrofit my home. Sure, we should do everything we can to change our lifestyles. And, I, you know, in part, I think, because children learn what they live. If it is a climate emergency and we're acknowledging it's a climate emergency, then they need to see us acting like mm -hmm. it's an emergency. However, um, this is not simply a lifestyle issue. Governments need to put in place the laws and policies in order to not just keep people safe, but to create systems where we have access to the right choices. Public transportation, which is easy and nice and accessible, so you don't always have to drive. Um, programs so that it gets cheaper and cheaper for us to do retrofits and lose, use less energy. Um, and, and access. Uh, to renewable energy systems, um, to putting renew renewable energy systems right on our homes. The fact is that renewable energy is distributed, uh, which means that it is more resilient in the face of extreme weather. Um, but we can't just say that it's a wealthy people who are going to be able to plan for climate change. Government needs to put in place systems so that everybody has access to to making those uh, right choices. So it's it's not just about lifestyle. Our next question comes from Beth Mundell. Uh, the IMF is touting increasing whale populations to increase phytoplanktons to sequester CO2, currently at the rate equivalent to four Amazon rainforests. Your comments, please. Sorry, at the beginning of that question, you said the IMF is what? The IMF is touting increasing whale populations to increase phytoplankton to sequester CO2. Hmm. I don't know that particular project. I've been researching quite a few other, what is I think considered geoengineering projects. Um, and I'm not an expert there. We have a homegrown expert in Canada, David Keith, who works at now at I think Harvard, but was in, is Alberta, was a, worked out of Alberta for a very long time. And I would encourage people to look at his research as he is an expert on, on geoengineering. Um, overall, I think my only comment would be that, again, while we need new technologies and initiatives, we have to work careful about acting like God. You know, what are the implications of, of, of all of these types of initiatives and how do they impact marine ecosystems, especially when marine ecosystems are so under stress? I mean, we have already seen a dramatic increase in ocean acidification and, and, and warming of oceans that is um, honestly having a devastating impact to marine ecosystems around the world. And so when we play at a large scale like this, what, what does it do? I think we have to be extremely careful with that. And I think we also have to be extremely careful in thinking that, the, again, that this these types of geoengineering um, projects can... Uh, allow us to justify continuing to increase pollution. Um, okay, Tom Moffat, BOGA is an excellent idea. The countries that want to lower emissions can move on to how? I think that's more a comment than a question. Um, Bev Mundell, would forgiveness of debt, debt of third world countries like Ecuador have a direct impact on stopping their coal slash oil development? Uh, yes, it would, uh, because right now um, Ecuador has a debt for oil swap with China, literally. 
So, so the new oil development that they're proposing in the heart of the Amazon, which, by the way, is opposed by the indigenous nations who live still traditionally in the heart of the Amazon, um, and we've seen the impacts of that oil development just in the last um, month. Uh, again, uh, tr huge oil spills um, that are polluting the Amazon River. Um, and every time a new road goes into the Amazon to allow new drilling, that road is an access point for the fires. So the fires that are burning the Amazon right now, the intact areas where there is no industrial development are the areas that are, that are, that are, are still strong. And the areas where we see the, the most fire damage is anywhere that there have been roads. The road is the fire access. Um, so that's terrifying given the new plans that um, uh, the president of Ecuador has said for dramatically expanding the oil industry. And again, those are predominantly to feed, those plans for oil drilling are just to feed China's debt. So if China agreed to debt forgiveness or the IMF stepped in to support Ecuador on debt forgiveness, then they would be able to do something else. Um, and certainly their current oil drilling is in opposition to Ecuador's commitment to the uh, rights of indigenous people, Ecuador's commitments on climate change, Ecuador's commitments to protecting the Amazon for biodiversity. And, and, but yet they continue to expand drilling and it, it literally is just to feed their debt. Okay, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. When speaking with large oil companies and governments or at COP26, was there any discussion of job training for oil and gas workers to transition to jobs in green energy? Quite a lot of discussion. There's some great work being done um, <clears throat> by the Just Transition uh, Center, um, IUTC, I think it is, as well as the ILO. They all have Just Transition uh, programs. There have definitely been a lot of conversations with governments. Our government has really focused on job retraining and just transition policies and plans for coal uh, and not for oil and gas. And I think it's part of the denial that we're still in in Canada that we're going to have to reduce production. The industry would like us to believe that we can reduce emissions while maintaining or increasing production. But the numbers don't add up. Uh, it's a, it's a, I said in my talk, uh, from denial to delusion. We need to face the fact that we're going to have to dramatically reduce production and, and make a plan. And I don't think that's happening enough in Canada. It's certainly, there were huge discussions uh, led by uh, uh, union leaders at COP about what that could look like. There are um, a number of great uh, reports uh, that are out on that topic. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn um, from the mistakes this government made around the fisheries collapse on the East Coast, for example, um, and from the steps that have been taken around the world as the coal industry um, starts to be constrained, what's working and 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 what's not. I, I think I think the fact is you, you can't it's not going to be easy. Um, and we, we need to ensure, um, that the retraining addresses what people want to do and learn and where there are new um, economic opportunities or existing industries that can be supported. 
and 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 also that it's the same quality of jobs that it's the same um, that it's the same level of, of income. These are complex issues, uh, but there's a, a number, there's a lot of great resources out there and in Canada as well, where the, this conversation is happening, but it's not happening fast enough, especially because the Alberta government is really refusing to acknowledge that it needs to happen. Okay, our next question comes from Edda Sullinger. Peter Lougheed's Heritage Trust Fund and then in brackets intending, intended for a rainy day would come in handy if the Conservatives had not whittled away the money? I guess more a comment than a question, but... but it, it, especially because there are a lot of Albertans um, on this webinar, I would say that's a really, really critical issue. Because um, if we look at other countries, uh, Norway, for example, um, they have been putting so much money into their royalty system uh, that they now have all of these public funds to kickstart other emissions reductions that support the public, you know, public transit, etc. And and their emissions are going down. I mean, Norway is still uh, is still not a member of BOGA. It hasn't committed to stop expansion uh, of of oil and gas. But the fact is, cleaning up the impact of the industry, being able to use funds for um, you know, economic diversification, job retraining, and reducing emissions in other sectors, they have a lot of money to do that, and we don't. Mm -hmm. And we would have if we had put in place a Lougheed's plan way back then. Um, but in fact, royalties, the amount of money the oil industry has to pay back uh, to taxpayers is just consistently going down, uh, not up. Um, and that, uh, especially given that the money the government put in place to clean up the industry during COVID, most of it went back to the big companies. You know, this is, I think they have a stranglehold. They have a stranglehold on our budgets. They have a stranglehold on our politics and it's not serving the, the people well. Mark Goodall, what do you say to people who blame China and India completely ignoring per capita greenhouse gas productions? China is probably doing more to switch to renewables than most other countries, including ours. But they are modernizing, so require more and more energy. We produce more per capita than both India and China. Well, that's absolutely true. And then the fact is we actually produce more per capita than um, last time I looked at any other country uh, in the oh. world. Um, and so, so what do you say to that? First of all, I would say, the fact is, um, at this moment in history, every ton of carbon matters. Every ton of carbon that we don't put into the atmosphere saves lives. Every ton of carbon that we don't put into the atmosphere impacts what kind of future our kids and our grandkids are going to have. That's the bottom line. And, and so whether Canada is less than 1% or 1% or 10%, we are a wealthy country with a relatively stable democracy, um, and 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 we have the capacity to make the changes now, and it will benefit us. There are, are so many studies out there that say the longer we wait, the harder it will be, and the more it will cost us, not only to deal with the increase in climate impacts, but but just to transition our economies, and 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 so. We 
Um, uh, well, and I think the other argument is that it's not that small. We're still one of the top 20 polluters on the planet. And, and so what we do matters. And then third, at this moment, leadership matters. We would still have a massive hole in the ozone layer today. I don't know, you know how old people are on this call, but I remember growing up hearing about the hole in the ozone layer and how people were literally burning more because there was a hole in the ozone layer. Well, it's one of the great environmental success stories of our age. We negotiated the Montreal Protocol, we banned CFCs, we healed the holes in the ozone layer. As a planet, we did that, and we did it because of Canada. Canada was a leader in creating the Montreal Protocol. It wasn't because we used more CFCs than the rest of the world. It was because it was a globally intransigent problem that affected our people, and the government stuck, stepped up and negotiated the Montreal Protocol. And that's why we're calling on our government and governments around the world to step up and endorse and start negotiating a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And, and so what, what we do in Canada at this moment matters. Leadership matters. It inspires other people. It inspires our own citizens to take action. I think it's one of the great disconnects we have is that people read the science. They know, they feel the impacts, the heat dome, the floods. They know it's happening. And then they don't really see our politicians acting. And so that disconnect um, is critical to all of us acting and taking serious the climate emergency because it, in the back of our minds, the, the, the climate psychological research shows that in the back of our minds, if our, if our government is not acting like it's an emergency, then it must not be, mm. but, but it is. We know it is, the science shows it is, and we can see it happening in our lives now. And so that leadership from our governments to act, even if we are uh, not as big a polluter as the United States or China, we could influence what kind of agreements are made that are gonna ensure we have a stable planet. Right. Um, are you okay if we ask one more question? Are you okay if we ask one more question? I know we're right on, smack on time, and I'm sure you're very busy. One more? Thank you. Leona Jacobs, in your opinion, how does the issue of metallurgical coal figure into the picture? The Alberta government is hell-bent to open pit mine the eastern slopes, suggesting, suggesting is not the bad coal, but coal for steel. We already have enough. That's the bottom line. Um, last year, um, I, we spent a lot of time working with universities and experts around the world to create a report called the Fossil Fuel Exit Strategy. I really wanted to answer the question of, do we need uh, more fossil fuels during the transition? Do we need more coal, whatever type of coal, metallurgical coal for steel, everything? And, and so this is a global report. Um, you can find it on my website, fossilfueltreaty.org, the fossil fuel exit strategy. What it clearly shows is that we don't need more. We already have enough above ground um, or uh, under production to use uh, uh, while we transition. And, and so when a country or an individual like Premier Kenny is saying, 
um, we need more, um, that's about profit and greed, not about whether the planet needs that resource. Um, and, and, and it denies all of the impacts, uh, especially the impacts of creating infrastructure and hiring people and creating these industries when the whole world is committing to move away uh, from these industries, because it just sets us, which you know in Alberta better than anyone else, on a boom and bust cycle again and again and again, um, instead of on a, on, 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 some, on a more reliable and resilient uh, economic uh, structure. So I'm not an expert on, on coal, uh, but I did want really uh, spend a lot of time last year just trying to understand how much do we need? And, and, and what, do we, what do we need it for? And I think one of the big problems is that we're looking at it in each of our jurisdictions instead of looking at uh, the planet as a whole. I know we're out of time, um, but these are really huge issues. I spend my life um, exploring them. For some folks who may have joined this podcast or this webinar, this is hard stuff uh, to look at. I think it really is critical to look at it, though. If any of this is new to you about climate impacts, um, go to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They've got summary documents about what we can expect and what the projections are at different um, temperature rates, fossilfueltreaty.org. Um, and also, I guess just at the end of my TED Talk, which you never got to hear today, um, I talk about hope um, and inspiration. And the fact is, we are capable of enormous change in our lifetimes. I mean, I'm not that old. And when I started doing this work, when I started working on environmental campaigns, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. The world has entirely changed in my lifetime. And, and it will change in, in our lifetimes. We're actually on the cusp of reimagining industrial society. And, and that's an exciting time, but not unless we all lean into it. So hope, hope isn't just something you have if you have the facts. Hope is something you create. Hope is something I have every day because I do this work and that work gives me hope. I meet other people who are committed to it and doing this work and we make progress and that gives me hope. And so I, I, I hope that all of you who are listening will engage in whatever way is meaningful to you. Maybe it's by just signing a petition or endorsing something at Stand.Earth or Fossil Fuel Treaty. Um, but I hope some of you will pick up the phone or, or write a letter to your MLAs and to your MPs, because our elected officials need to know that it's that there will be support if they make the hard choices, but there will be choices. There will be, um, there'll be support for the hard choices and that there will be consequences if they don't act. So thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for your time, for your very informative uh, talk. There's lots of thank yous in the queue um, for your depth of knowledge and commitment. Um, and on behalf of SACPA, thank you. And for our folks, join us next week. We'll be the next week, Wednesday, not Thursday, on Wednesday, February 16th, with Tad Mitsui, reflecting on freedom and responsibilities. Excellent. Thanks, folks. We'll see you all next week, Wednesday.